This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, robotics engineer turned consciousness hacker Mikey Siegel is joined in conversation by Alexander Rebin, an artist and roboticist. They discuss new developments in artificial intelligence and our ethical relationship to technological innovation. This talk was recorded on June 20, 2017 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Yeah, I want to start by saying I, I almost feel like I'm I'm in the audience too. I'm I'm as intrigued as anyone what's going to come out of this conversation. I'm so curious. Um, Alex and I are, are just meeting. We've had the chance to talk for the last hour or so. And um, it's been refreshing and interesting and intriguing. I'm like, oh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. We're coming from really unique vantage points, even though we both spent time at the MIT Media Lab exploring robotics. Um, we've um, taken, in some ways, overlapping um, interests and in some ways very very divergent and different interests and we're kind of like um it's been kind of fun for the last little while because we're sort of like two different worlds uh coming together um and uh and maybe the the way that we can start here as a thought is um to get a sense of those worlds maybe um if you want to kind of give a sense alex of what's what's hot for you right now what are you what uh what gets you all tingly and excited. What, what's what's exciting in your world? Where are you focused? Yeah, I would say uh, in the general public, the the buzzwords are things like artificial intelligence as much as the topic of artificial intelligence is used like the word uh, words hoverboard or drone, these sort of things that the press have given to these, these technologies, which aren't really how, how they've been used. Um, and these have created interesting conversations around issues that that may be uh, that may arise in the future. Um, but one of the things I see happening is a lot of people are focusing on this idea of uh, really what it is is general artificial intelligence. And what that means is that it's an artificial intelligence that thinks for itself. It's what the public thinks artificial intelligence is, whereas these are you know thinking machines which think like us. Um, but really, what we're going to have to deal with in the next, you know, twenty to maybe a hundred years is is specific artificial intelligence, things like like deep learning or um, even algorithms that just make pure decisions that are decisions that used to be made by people. So for me, the interest, or at least in what I do, is to bring some of these interactions or machines or technology from the f near future uh, to now and allow people to experience them within the, the context of either an interaction or, or see a video or that sort of thing. Um, so I've done a, a few things around that, and that's sort of helped both inform me on the things that I do after that just by watching how people react to it and watching even how the media reports on it um, to yeah, having general um, uh, reactions that, that people have to these things, which I think um, are, are useful to do outside of an academic context as well in a place more fluid like a, like a gallery or that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd say one of, the, one of the hot topics, especially in ethics right now, the thing that's, that, that probably everyone has, has heard in the news uh, the past year are, are um, cases like self-driving cars 
Um, so these are systems that uh, A, will have some sort of uh, intelligence, um, deep learning or something of that sort inside of it, and B, will be taking the public safety into its hands in the near future. So this is something I think why it's reported a lot on, it's why it's of concern to a lot of people. Um, and it's real. It's <laughs> this is something we're facing right right now. Yep, there there are self driving cars I, in the world. I, I passed one on the road today. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the the classic problems that uh, have been reported on. Um, it's also an old thought experiment. Is the the trolley car problem in self driving cars? The idea is if the car has to make a decision, uh, say just simply make a decision to kill the person driving the car or in the car, maybe not driving, or a pedestrian on the outside, who will it choose um, if it can't actually save both? Um, and this seemingly simple question uh, leads to all sorts of considerations. And the trolley car problem is it was similar. If you're, if you're operating a switch track that has a, has a trolley on it, and the trolley can be on one or two tracks, um, there are all sorts of different people or animals they put on each track to get you to decide whether to, to flip it one way or the other. Um, so in that thought experiment, there's a human in the loop. But in the uh, self-driving car experiment, it's the car that's come to make a decision. Um, so that's where arguments and, and, and uh, debates start to happen. Yeah, so th this is interesting. Um, and th this uh, kind of leads to this, this question that I really wonder about, which is um, where the, um, the human ends and the AI begins. Um, had someone who came up to me in uh, the audience who teaches at Stanford, I, I'm sorry, I forgot your name, um, but I might not be allowed to say it on because it's being recorded. Um, and you said something really impactful to me because you're teaching your students about this, um, a lot of engineering students, students that are developing these systems about the relationship between ethics and what they're creating. And your plea to them is something like, you need to, to bake those ethics into the very systems that you're creating in a deep way. And this thing that I really wonder about is, um, is this, this inevitability of the relationship between who we are and what we build. Um, meaning we have this idea that we um, create this system and then we set it free in the world, and then all of a sudden it's on this trolley track and it's gonna go left or it's gonna go right. It's gonna kill like um, 17 old ladies or three infants, you know, and we have to kind of weigh which one is, is better or worse. And, um, and what feels inescapable to me is that the coders, the entrepreneurs, the funders, the designers of that AI system are still deeply, inextricably embedded into the DNA of that seemingly quote-unquote autonomous system in the same way that when you're walking around and you're making a decision and you're, you know, in a... Um, I remember um, my sister told a story where she was in a supermarket and um, someone was buying, uh, I think, something off a shelf, some juice or something, and she runs up to them and grabs them, and she says, don't you know there's this other one that's on sale? And then five minutes later, she calls my dad, and she's like, oh, my God, I did this mom thing. You're not going to believe it. It's something my mom would do. And, you know, baked in her DNA, sort of in this way she's not even aware of, is the influence of my parents and their parents and their parents, even though there's this seemingly autonomous thing happening. So, <clears throat> so 
Um, yeah, just to kind of throw it out there is something that I'm really intrigued by and curious to kind of get your sense on is, is, um, is there a such thing as a totally autonomous system? Can what we create ever really be separate from us? Or is it always in some way tethered to us, an extension of us, a reflection of who and what we are? Um, and if that's true, how, how does that change our, our relationship to it, our ethical responsibilities? I think the difference between a person and, say, like the self-driving car is that um, the, the influences on that person are... Um, a bit more local, right? Your family has a lot more influence. Maybe next way out is your teachers and out from there is TV or something. Um, whereas something like a, a car programming that system, you may have 20,000 different people having yeah. their hands on different things. Yeah. Right. And um, say the question of, uh, do you kill an infant crawling across the street or the driver, right? Um, is that, is should that be up to the driver? Should that be up to the people who are programming it? And say, the person programming it hates babies for some reason, um, and they baked in the fact that they hate babies, like you're saying. Um, the question is: Is there somewhere along the line where someone's going to catch that, or is it even? Will it even be up to the engineer to put that thing in there? Will it be caught by legal or, or insurance or, or someone along that line? Um, uh, so the question is: Where along that chain? Uh, how much of your personal self can you insert into that chain? Um, and how much of it's going to be filtered out. Um, and I think those are, uh, at least for the near future, those are things that are going to be um, easy to insert and chop out. But uh, I think for the further future where, you know, maybe maybe a system learns from people and then uses that learning to do something, yeah, then it will be colored. There's a classic example where I forget what company put it out. I think it might have been... Microsoft, uh, I'm not sure, but someone made a, a chat robot that was going to learn from chatting with people, and all of a sudden it became super, super racist because the people who were talking to it were being racist to it. So it learned from the people, um, and that's an example of a you know a learning system that's trying to be social. Um, so I think the amount of the person left in those systems is also going to depend on their application, like a system to you know maybe. Um, sort M&Ms at a factory um, is going to have less of a personal sense than something that's trying to learn how we converse with other people. So I think the, the, the end goal of the system might affect the amount of ourselves in it as well. So, okay, I'm going to push you on this a little bit. So um, what, I, what I would put forth is that um, it's, it's not a question of if the creators of a system bake themselves into the system. It's a question of how, is what I would say. It's, I would say that it's fundamentally inevitable, meaning when someone sits down to write that code, it's exactly the same as someone picking up a paintbrush and going to a blank canvas. That canvas is empty, and it is um, a direct expression of the human, the consciousness, the unique qualities of that person that actually creates what's there. There is a void before it starts, whether that's one person or 10 people or a thousand person company, it's still the direct expression of the individuals that make up the, the sort of the DNA, the, the collective intention of that company. And I wonder, for example, for this sort of Microsoft fiasco where all of a sudden you've got this racist robot running around, um, I wonder if that um, system 
was developed by, and I don't know the answer to this question, I'm just wondering, if that system was developed by um, a group of engineers, and I have a, gr I have a guess of um, what the, the sort of um, you know, racial makeup of the engineers probably was, just because it's kind of how it goes statistically, um, if that system was created by um, a, a really diverse group of engineers that were deeply steeped and sensitive to those issues from the very beginning, and that was something they were already concerned about and thinking about, um, would they, just because that's on their mind, and just because that's something that they deeply care about and something that they're deeply concerned about, do you think it's possible that that system would have turned out uh, differently? I, I think it depends on the system as well. And I would say there's much more influence specifically for self for systems that learn things, there's much more influence into that system based on the selection of data set rather than the implementation of algorithm. Um, take an example of, of a uh, deep learning system called WaveNet that, that Google put out. Um, the idea behind WaveNet is that it had it it's able to basically look at a waveform at all the points of, of data that you feed into it and then sort of predict the next points. And basically what it does, it makes sounds. The sounds that come out of it sound like the sounds you trained it on. And the, the influence of the, the actual algorithm of what the coders built, um, they, they don't know what's going in or out of it. They simply have the stated goal of making a waveform come out that looks like it came in. So the, the huge impact there is really what, what am I training it on? Um, and sort of similar with the Microsoft thing, the, the probably actually the, the snafu that was made probably wasn't in the core algorithm, it was probably in who they released this to online and where they were pulling their data from. So maybe the, the makeup of the team there led them to release this to a certain audience who that, that then led to this problem. Um, so uh, I think we need to separate a bit the, the, the learning system from what it learns. And uh, one's gonna have much more influence on its behavior uh, than the other. Not to say that you can't uh, build in biases for the algorithm side, um, but yeah, the data sets can have much, a much huger effect. Yeah, so the, yeah, this is, this is great. Yeah, really interesting question. And, um, and I, I, um, I agree, you know, N not necessarily, I don't, I don't know what the ratio is, you know, I don't know how, um, how the, um, the impact of the data set versus the impact of the external world that the system shows up in versus the impact of the, the kind of the, the algorithm itself. I don't know how those all relate to each other, um, but um, they all seem to be really important pieces of the puzzle um, from what I can tell. And, um, my, you know, my own, my own interest is, um, to kind of give a little sense of where I'm coming from, is um, really looking at sort of the ultimate um, optimistic side of this, the, the potential that's here. And I do, I do think about the concerns, and actually I know you've, you've thought a lot about that, and I'd love to hear more about it. Um, but I sort of think, um, what is the greatest possible benefit that technology and AI could possibly provide to humanity. And, and that question, what it begs, is also this question of what's the greatest potential of humanity. Um, because presumably, um, you could say, as kind of a general, really general statement, is the greatest benefit um, that these systems could provide is in supporting 
the greatest possible potential of humanity, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. So what I've spent a lot, time, a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time um, exploring uh, within myself is what, what is that potential? And I know, you know, here at uh, CIIS, um, that's also one of the big questions that is being explored. What is that potential and how do we support that potential? You know, and um, the, the focus for me, because there's so many ways you could look at it. You could look at it in terms of um, industry. You could look at it in terms of, um, you know, how we function sort of in the kind of the manifest sense in, in, um, in the external world, having efficient, you know, um, um, transportation and distribution of resources and all these kinds of things. But um, for me, what it seems to come back to again and again and again and again is, um, is, is human experience, is the, the, the depth and the quality of our consciousness, uh, the, uh, the, the who and what we are. And for me, um, everything seems to stem from that. There's a, there's a great quote that I love. Um, it's the first line of the UNESCO Constitution. Um, and it says, um, it's from the United Nations, and it says, since wars begin in the minds of men, it's in the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be constructed. And it's this sense that, um, that the, the conflict and the pain and the hatred and the, and the um, and the suffering in the world, if we look around this day and age, is almost entirely human-generated. Sure, there are some natural disasters and things like that do happen, but the vast majority of it now is actually created by human beings. And what I would say is that below that, more fundamental to that, is it's created by human beings that are experiencing conflict within themselves. Um, and that external conflict is a reflection of an internal conflict. And, um, and so when I look at, for me, what the greatest potential of these systems are, it's in healing that internal conflict. It's in creating the most noble, the most ethically refined, the most compassionate, the most loving, the most interconnected human beings that we possibly can and then allowing whatever um, civilization arises to be an emergent property from that uh, elevated state of human consciousness. And so my question for AI is, um, you know, can or how can um, AI be uh, a tool to really serve that elevation of humanity? Well, I suppose you would first have to um, solve a lot of basic needs. I think that's probably, you know, before before you get to that level, that's, I'd imagine what a lot of conflict is about as well, it's just simply starvation or repression or things of that sort. So the question of, you know, what can technology do for that? Well, um, I mean, you can start with 
purely artificial intelligence, you might be able to do things like have more efficient crop yields just from better calculations and data, all the way to, you know, say we get further on and we have, you know, ro robotics for everything, then we can probably have a lot more efficient ways to gather and distribute and, and real-time um, deal with food. Um, and I guess the, the question after that point is how far, you know, how many of these uh, jobs and restrictions that are things that people don't want to do need to be removed to bring us to that, to that next level, I suppose, like, um, do all the, you know, if we look back to when we were, when we were cavemen, right, if we had to keep hunting and gathering all the time, we wouldn't have time to sit down and do, you know, thoughts about philosophy or science or, or art. Um, so, you know, the technologies that were made then, you know, the, just using a bone to beat an animal, right? You know, that, that got you more food quicker and allowed you to sort of evolve as a human in a way. Um, so the question is, what does that look like, you know, in the next hundred years? Yeah, can um, you, I'd be so curious, like, like paint the picture if you, for you kind of, if you were to look op optimistically and um, these, we talked about it a little bit before, it was really interesting. If you imagine kind of optimistically these systems um, kind of, continuing to progress in terms of the way that they're able to kind of support humanity in these various ways, like, like almost like you're telling us the story, like what, what would that, what do you think that would look like? Like how, how would that, how would that progress along and what might be the, like the pitfalls, the unexpected gotchas that we might, we might hit? Yeah, we, we could get to the point where um, all the jobs that are very dangerous to do are fully automated. Um, we could even get to the point where most jobs are, are automated, um, which would free up people to do whatever they want to do. And that, that could lead to things like, you know, universal income and, and ways for people to be supported um, in that way. So looking at the optimistic side, um, if you provide that much more freedom and that much more access to resources in an efficient way, then we can, you know, without those burdens, we can move forward as a society in different ways. You know, the question is, you know, will that will that remove war or, or suffering or all these sorts of things? Those are huge, you know, <laughs> huge questions to, to figure out. But staying on the optimistic side, um, yeah, this could allow people just to pursue their, their passions. And then we're left with the question, well, if all, you know, if all work and friction and things you don't want to do are removed, or maybe even things you do want to do, uh, the question is then, what do we become as humans? So imagine right now, if you you know were um, you know you had all your needs taken care of, you had a place to live forever, you had all the food that you wanted, anything you really wanted, you could just have like this. You know, if you look at a lot of uh, wealthy people or, or children of wealthy people who kind of live in these situations, they start doing all these crazy things because they're kind of listless and bored with their lives. So th this this thing that may seem so wonderful and positive might actually lead to situations we see in some isolated cases right now with people where you know existentially the some of the some of the meaning is taken away. Um, but that you know that could again optimistically lead us to well what do we could we become purely explorers, go to like the Star Trek route where we're just sort of expanding throughout the universe because we can, you know, we don't have to deal with all these lower, lower problems. Um, yeah, I think it, it could allow, you know, our, you know, evolution to continue and maybe we would attain things that either are now are difficult or we, we just don't even know where that are available to us because we're still hooked to this, this work money sort of, sort of lifestyle. Um, so it, it's a situation that 
we may not have seen many times throughout history, um, and it may allow us to, to take that route. The question is, yeah, um, existentially, what's satis satisfying to the human, you know, being, um, and what's, you know, what's our ultimate purpose, <laughs> which is, you know, quite the question. Yeah, this, this is this feels like the in some ways the the heart of it, or or one particularly really um, core core piece, um, because there is that optimistic possibility, right? That all of a sudden, check, checkbox, 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 all the basic needs of humanity as our systems become increasingly automated and efficient and intelligent could be met, you know, food, shelter, medical support, um, basic income. And all of a sudden, um, everything that we'd been striving for um, is there. And I, I, um, I wonder if that if that's um, the best or worst thing that could ever happen to humanity. And and I I, I can tell from my own experience that um, one of the most um, dramatic and transformative points in my life was when I I legitimately got to a point, um, which is probably one of the most privileged points that someone can get to where I actually had everything that I wanted. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a time in my life where I had I'd finished, you know, my graduate work at MIT, sort of checked all these boxes off. I felt like, oh, wow, now I'm, you know, have my parents' approval and I, you know, I have society's approval and then I got a good job and I was living with friends and sort of all of these things um, had turned up roses. And I, I, um, I had checked every box off on my list and um, I was forced to realize something very uncomfortable, um, that I still felt like shit. And it was something that I had been able to avoid um, because of my continual um, searching and my continual belief that um, by changing and fixing and, and altering the external world in some way that eventually I would get the sense of satisfaction and the sense of completeness that I was looking for. And for me, in my own experience, I was forced to realize that um, that sense of um, incompleteness and the sense of lack and everything that I was looking for was in many ways with, within myself. Um, but I was forced to see that through the reality of literally not being able to convince myself anymore that I had to keep searching. And I wonder, what, what would that look like on a global scale? And, and could, there be, could there ever be an end to the ways that we distract ourselves? You know, there's, um, there's interesting research that um, suggests that addiction in many cases um, is not just this kind of purely... A chemical process where we have these sort of addictic, addictive chemicals that our body has a kind of a compulsive reaction to, um, and then we have to respond. You know, there's this classic experiment where you have um, the rat, right, that's given the cocaine in the water bottle, and it's given two two choices. You can either get the the um, the, the drugs, or you can get um, food. And the the experiment shows that. Time and time again, the rat will choose the, the drug, and it's kind of this, this um, sort of 
doom kind, doomsday kind of story of the, the incredible addictive capacity of these substances that, will, that these rats will die um, in order to get them. But then there was a, um, a revision of this experiment where um, this thing called Rat Park was created, which was kind of this utopia for rats where everything was set out for them. Because rats are very social animals. Um, rat, uh, they had a bunch of other rats that they could socialize with. They had things that they could explore. They had different areas that they could get into. They had plentiful food. Um, and, um, and then they had this cocaine sitting in a corner that rats could freely access. And in the first experiment, the rats were completely isolated in one of these barren metal cages, right? But in the second experiment, consistently the rats would taste a little bit, they would explore it, but eventually they wouldn't, they wouldn't care about it and they would go on with their lives. And um, what it suggests is that um, perhaps some aspect of addiction is a, is a coping mechanism is something that we turn to to deal with the pain of life. And, um, and what I wonder is, like, um, as, you know, technology gets more and more advanced, it seems like our capacity to um, deal with those pains, you know, sort of the technological version of heroin, will become even more potent you know, and we talked about this, it's sort of like the Soma, you know, type thing, right? We, you know, there's this risk that we kind of go down this road where, um, where technology allows us to perhaps escape even more effectively and more effectively and more effectively. Um, and so, you know, I wonder like what is kind of, you know, I'm trying to think, what's my question? <laughs> to kind of <laughs> throw this out there like, um, you know, something we were talking about before, like, you know, this seems like a very real potential consequence or a very real potential reality where um, you can have sort of the AI which is in service to the ultimate kind of hedonism, the ultimate escape, um, or a AI that's in service to, um, you know, um, to transformation, to to well-being, to some greater human potential, or maybe there there isn't, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess, you know, there's a question, you know, is it ethical to make things simply the best? And, you know, that it might, you know, are we as, can we even, can we deal with a life where there's nothing to achieve, really? And uh, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, you look at people playing games, right, where the achievements are totally just false achievements, but they're there. There are things that people trying you get more points, you try to get get the end goal and that sort of thing. So you could see a society, you know, where if all the real things you need to achieve are taken care of, like there's just all these artificial achievements that are that are put out there. Um, you know, and you you could have the this this question of um, you know Right now, drugs are seen seen as bad because they take people out of society in a way. Right, they, they become non-functional. But if you look in a society where people don't really need to be functional in that way, the question is: Is, is heroin gonna be you know ethical? Because 
whatever. That if you choose, you want to just be happy all the time and just be flush with drugs, and you know you have medical bots that'll take care of you and that sort of thing. I mean, that, that could you know fundamentally change our, our way of thinking those things. But you know, from a from a human evolution perspective, I think we can say no. It's that's not great. It's not good just to have people stalled. Um, but if we are looking at this society where almost everything's taken care of. The question is, you know, what's what's next for us to to achieve? And say it's things that are purely mental, like, you know, um, just say um, a very theoretical math, for instance, or, uh, or, or art, or these sorts of things. You know, not, ev not everyone's going to want to do those things. They're just not going to be motivated to do them. So the question is, you're going to have, you know, if you have a society where there are people that are able to do and want to do these these high level things, and you have people who don't. How do you give those people a sense of of meaning in the world if they don't have you know those jobs anymore? Um, and you know this is basically all the problems that you, know, you just call it utopia, right? And you look at all the problems throughout history people have been thinking about with with a society like that. Uh, the question, you know, will people try to make trouble just because that's something to do? And because causing trouble is something to achieve, okay, then if you have these troublemakers, you know, the system's going to try to suppress them. And the question is, you know, what is, who is the system at that point? Like, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, mess up someone else's life, now, now we're back to the, you can't totally eliminate that problem. So will, will like that sort of society eliminate wars and, and conflict? I, I think we'll always have things to fight about unless people are artificially, uh, subdued in some way, whether that be uh, entertainment. Say we're at a time where you will have a 24/7 uh, TV show beamed to your brain that's individual to you. So whatever you like, whatever topics you like, the the system will figure out and just make that show for you. So at all times you're sort of entertained and, and placated and not thinking about anything else, or you know just simply injecting drugs in you all the time. Um, uh, and is, is that is that ethical? If that ends wars, is that ethical? Um, is it more ethical to have that sort of conflict? So again, this is all like hypothetical, real real far stuff in the future. Um, but um, we're going to hit some of that soon. We're going to see a lot of jobs replaced by by automation fairly quickly. I think the curve is 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 heading up, and particularly jobs that haven't been seen as automatable in the past, like um, like lawyers, for instance. You know, a lot of their work is finding information in books and making an argument around that. To me, that's sort of a very you know computer-centric problem. Um, but you know, arguing to a jury, a jury might want to see a person and have a have a personal plea rather than a computer talking to a jury. Or maybe we're going to have a jury, you know, switched out for a deep learning system where you know, oh yeah, it'll be much better because it it knows all the law. It's not going to be swayed by you know personal pleas. It'll just be right. black and white and built-in lie detectors. So. Built-in lie, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we 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 quickly you know in all these little offshoots we quickly move into all these sci-fi dystopian sort of sort of things um so the question is can you completely remove uh the the pain in humanity the strife the, the struggle and still be human uh, it's a, you know it's an interesting question and if not we need to find endeavors that are completely human um you know we got to say well you know we can have robots explore the stars but we really got to send people out there because we just gotta there's no logical reason, right? But we got to. Robots can handle radiation and stuff better. But our human potential is maybe to spread amongst the universe. That's yeah, one theory you can go down. Um, or to achieve some sort of enlightenment or all the above. Um, 
so yeah, the, the question of, yeah, the sort of technological utopia is strange. I mean, you also think of like the, the singularity theory, right? Where at that point, we're going to be so integrated with the technology that um, we are in effect the machines, so the the difference between human and machine is so blurred that you know we're just sort of this integral part of of this technology, and again, is that is that ethical? Is that an, or is that just natural evolution? Is technology a natural part of our our modification of the world? Um, you know, these are all interesting questions to think about. Uh, yeah, a million <laughs> a million interesting questions there. Um, I. I um, so you you made a project, Alex, um, called uh, the called First Law, yep. right? Named after um, Isaac Asimov's First Law of Robotics, and uh, it's it's a really interesting project. I I think it'd be cool if you if you told everyone about it. And um, and one of the things that's that interests me about it is um, is it's this it's an exploration. It kind of really gets you thinking about um, this idea of r- robot intention. Um, and the relationship between the intention of the creator of the robotic system. And, um, you know, as you were talking, um, there were these kind of general um, uh, references to kind of what, what the, how the system will be structured and what the system is optimizing for. And the thought that keeps coming up for me is like, well, what is that system? And who's creating that system and why? What's the collective intention of that system, you know? And... Um, I think it's a very real possibility, very real possibility that um, that in the next, you know, there, there was a, a group of experts that were asked, um, and these were experts across domains, including AI, and they were asked, what year do you believe there's a 50-50 chance that AI will be as intelligent as humans? And the general consensus um, average was around 2040-2050. Um, Doesn't mean that's true, but... Um, you know, there could be lots of debate there, but just to say, um, there's this very real looming possibility that um, that AI could be um, as intelligent as humans, and the moment it's as intelligent, there's an exponential increase in intelligence where very soon it's going to be um, incredibly more intelligent and capable than we are. And then all of a sudden, this question of, well, what's the intention of that system? Right? What, what does it want? What is it optimizing for? What does it care about? What is it avoiding? All of a sudden, that question becomes extremely, extremely salient because um, what you're talking about when you, when you have an intelligent system that progresses to that level is, is power. It is um, perhaps the, um, more powerful than the collective atomic bombs ever created on this planet. Because it itself could launch all of them and and or create a one that's a hundred thousand times more powerful. It is um, the sharpest razor's edge ever imagined. And the question is, what direction will it cut? You know. And so, for your, you know, to kind of bring it back to your project, like, you know, for me, that's where this, you know, I'd love to hear about the project after I stop babbling and uh, and the sense of like how it relates to intention and how you kind of baked it in there. Yeah. So. I think to answer that, I'm going to go a bit sort of backwards. So um, one of the things you describe relates to another thought experiment basically called the, uh, something like the the paper-clipped optimization um, idea. So say you make a a system, an artificially intelligent system, and you say your goal is to make as many paper clips as you can. 
Um, and it says, great, you know, it has a factory with paper, cl uh, paper clip making machines and it takes it over and it starts bringing in materials and, and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden it says, well, gee, you know, the, all the iron ore coming in here, well, you know, I can, you know, I could do better than that. So I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, we don't really need that I-beam over in here because there pe aren't people working. Let's tear that down. Oh, okay. You know what? I, I can, uh, um, maybe I should make an invention that turns other matter into iron. So I'll make that thing. Um, oh, okay. Uh, well, you know, um, Let's see, the driveway uh, and the parking lot, I can turn into paper clips too. And then eventually, all of a sudden, it turns all matter and people into paper clips um, because it's doing what it needs to do. And someone trying to change its goal for making paper clips will cause it to make less paper clips. So if you try to keep it from doing what it's doing and killing everyone, it will kill you too uh, because you would be against its goal of making more paper clips. So there, it's a benign, uh, it's a very benign instruction, it seems, at the beginning that leads to the ultimate destruction of the world. Um, so that's where. <laughs> these these are you know again it's a thought experiment but this is sort of the idea of how how something that's that's programmed in there as a law can can you know it's quite you know logically to you as a person who's limited by you know you can't turn matter into iron milly nilly um, to you it might seem you know you wouldn't make the jump to destroy humanity to make more paper clips as a person but you didn't really specify that to the machine so moving to Asimov's laws uh, so if you're not aware of what the first law is. Um, it says uh, a robot may not uh, injure a person or, or allow a person to come to harm. Um, and uh, actually, some of Asimov's books go into why the laws are not enough and the robots go against what we think they should be doing. Uh, what Part of what it does is enslaves humanity because fighting wars hurts people, so we better not give them freedom anymore. Um, but the first law, uh, playing with the first law, uh, I was talking to like other robotics professors and people in the field, and we were trying to brainstorm. Is was there any robot up to that point that actually broke Asimov's first law in the way that it would sort of hit all the points? And really, there wasn't. The closest things were military robots. So the the two closest things are drone strikes, but that still has a person in the loop, sort of making the decision of who to kill. So it's you know still a robot killing people in a way, but there's still a person making a decision, so that didn't really count. The second one was something called the close-in weapon system that's on a lot of like Navy ships. And basically what it is, it's a uh, robotic Gatling gun. So if you're, if you're a ship or an airplane that comes into a certain envelope around the ship, the gun will find you and shoot you because you've, you've come across that, that spot. Um, so the reason why that doesn't really work is it's not making, really making a decision. It's a glorified trip mine. You tripped over the wire and it killed you. So the decision-making process is baked in. Even though it's super advanced and, and, and trying to find you and that sort of thing, it didn't really meet all the specifications. So as an artist, I wanted to make a robot that broke Asimov's first law, really for the first time, as far as I know, up to this point. Um, but I wanted to do it in the sort of lightest way possible because I didn't really, really want to hurt someone too badly. So what I came up with was, was this robotic arm that in the, on the end has a diabetes test needle which is basically this thing you prick your finger with to uh, pull a single drop of blood to, to test for diabetes. So if you bleed a little bit, that is an injury, and it hurts, it stings. So okay, that, that's my implement of, of, of destruction, if you will. Um, so when the person puts their hand near the robot, the robot will decide whether or not to hurt and injure that person. And this is the important distinction, and it's the invisible distinction. So internally in the software, it needed to make that decision in a way that me as a programmer could not predict. But it could not be random, because that would just be, so there's no decision made there. So that led to a lot of thinking of how can I program the most simple decision 
uh, hitting those two parameters. And the way it was done is it uses sensors, so uh, um, you know some information from the outside world, and it puts it through something called a one-way cryptographic hash. And one-way means basically the information you put on the input uh, makes information on the output, and you cannot go backwards. Um, so it took those sensors, put it through that hash, and it came out with a yes or no decision. And that yes or no decision told it to, to prick that person or not. So to me, it, it, it checked all the boxes that the robot up to that point had. And the reason I, I sort of view that as important is because it moved that robot from thought experiment to actual benchmark in history now. Now the thing exists in the real world. Now we actually have to really confront it. It's no longer just like, oh, what if sort of thing. Um, and it also, you know, got me thinking, A, what is a decision? This is still something that could be debatable, if that's really a decision or not. Um, and, and, and B, like, you know, how much of the robot did its thing? You still have to put your hand near it, right? It's not like coming to find you. So how, you know, how simple can these things be and really be ethically dubious is another question. Um, but there was no AI involved. There was no, you know, sort of intelligence in the thing, but it brought up all these very interesting ethical questions. Um, yeah, so sort of. <laughs> going backwards from from killer paper clips to yeah a uh, drop of blood there and and how how do you how do you feel like your intention as the creator relates to ultimately that decision making algorithm or that intention of the robot cuz clearly you had the idea that it should hurt someone you know i mean you like that it, the robot didn't come up with that right now it may be making a kind of an unpredictable decision making process but there's still like it's birthed from your intention it's birthed from your vision in a way isn't it yeah so this unlike say a general purpose robotic arm where you can put a paint gun on the end or a stapler or something um this was made specifically with the end effector being something that causes injury um so like a like a gun the physical object itself the intention in it is to cause harm. Whereas some robots, it might not be. So my my intention as a designer was to cause it, make it to cause harm. But you could just you could go one step further and you could bring the same algorithm to a big uh, car building robot. Um, and you give it a table of tools. You give it a you give it a, a gun, a paintbrush, you know, uh, um, uh, and a welding arm. Right, and it can choose what to use at what time. So now, simply by uh, giving it the gun and giving it these other things, my intention is still there because I laid out these tools for the robot. So really, to get away from what you're talking about, like the designer putting the intention in there, the robot itself would have to form the idea of hurting someone, and also fashion a tool or use itself to hurt that person. Um, so somewhere along the line, it would have had to have not been programmed to do that, but it did do that. And up to this point, anything of that sort in those sort of general robots have been accidents. Um, so the intention was, was either purely random or by, by chance that, you know, these things that, that weren't programmed happened. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, this, this is such a, um, interesting debate for me. This, this, I guess we keep coming back to it, this question of have, you know, is it actually ever possible for one of these systems to be intention, intention, you know, free of the influence of the creators? And and then the uh, you know the other side of it for me is um, is um, let's say let's say it is. Um, that said, we clearly have a lot of systems 
that are being created for very specific purposes, right? Intelligent systems that are showing up all over the place, whether they're in manufacturing processes or in um, uh, um, military applications. Um, and we're also seeing this stuff showing up in the space of transformation, in the space of, you know, what I would call the space of spiritual innovation. And, um, and that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, how when the actual intention from the very beginning of the AI system is to support the flourishing of humanity, what that looks like. And I, I kind of have this like optimistic pipe dream that I'm curious to kind of get your, your two cents on. So right now already you have this emerging space of transformative technology. And these are um, all sorts of technological systems from um, meditation apps to neurofeedback uh, wearables that read your brain waves and measure, um, uh, compare it to certain known states of meditation, and then play certain sounds to sort of guide you into deeper states of meditation. You have different types of brain stimulation. You have wearables that monitor your heart rate variability and guide you into a state of calm. You have breath feedback. You have all kinds of emerging technologies. And what a lot of these technologies have in common is that on one end, there's some sensing capability. They have some ability to um, measure and discern sort of where you're at, right? Maybe simple, maybe it's something about your heart rate, maybe it's about your movement, maybe it's about your breath, but they're basic, basically able to measure and discern where you're at. Um, and then there's another side, which is some intervention. That intervention might be sound, music, text, some way in which they're able to actually influence you, to change you. And then in the middle, there's some intelligence, right? There's, some, um, there's something that's smart, right? Um, and um, one of the directions that I see this going is something like, for example, the Netflix or Amazon for um, mental health and well-being and for spirituality and for transformation, right? Where um, like Netflix, um, first you have, you get to know the person that's using it. So, um, you understand in this case, um, from a bunch of psychological metrics, maybe you have sensors, you can measure what's happening with them. Um, you know, their personality type, you know, their behavior over time. Um, and then like Netflix has a bunch of movies here, you've got access to thousands of different interventions. I mean, people that are at CIS know there's, there's innumerable forms of meditation, yoga, different types of therapy, different types of technologies that you could use, different sorts of pharmaceuticals, thousands of different things, more than any one person could ever know about, let alone have access to, right, um, or find. Um, and then in the middle, you have some kind of recommendation system right? Something which looks at you, tries to figure out what's going to be best for you in this moment, and then says, okay, right about now, actually, you, you could use some deep breaths, you know? Or um, maybe it's like, oh, at this stage in your life for the, for the next six months, you know, really, you would benefit from this sort of yoga practice. Um, or maybe it's connecting to a specific psychotherapist that lives down, the, you know, works down the street from you or something like that. But it's the thing that's going to be optimized just for you. And so my, my question is, um, 
because we're already seeing these things emerge. We're already seeing this sort of intelligence that is trying to sort of solve this matching problem. What happens when that intelligence gets better and better and better and better? What happens when it gets a million times better? What happens when that system, which was designed from the ground up to essentially evaluate what your needs are, in terms of your ultimate evolution, the best possible way we have of understanding it, and then providing you with what you need in order to support that evolution, what happens when that's the most powerful AI on the planet? And what happens when that's in your pocket? And what happens when that's uh, in your walls? What happens when that's surrounding you and becomes ubiquitous in every moment, uh, an artificial wisdom that's with you all the time? Um, you know, for me, that's my, that's my dream. That's my hope as kind of the ultimate expression, the ultimate way that we might see um, AI evolve. Do you, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Um, well, if you get back to the intent of a system, you're talking about like the intent you're programming in to or the intent of the person that, that's coming through in this way. Um, in that sort of system, you have a specific intent for an end goal of, of something happening. Um, I would say the, the possible gotcha in that is the same as, almost the same as the first law, because you say, um, you know, robot, don't allow people to come to harm robots. Okay, I'm going to put everyone in prison right. and put them in padded rooms. That makes sense. Take away their freedom. Um, so the uh, if you have an intelligence system that its end goal is to make that person's life better in some way, yeah. you better make sure the way it's making that person's life better in that way is not making it much worse in in some other way. And that's a that's a human instinct of what quality of of um, what you do and what your life is that a machine either has to learn or be programmed to do. Um, and yeah, there are also, I mean, now there's all sorts of unintended consequences of these things, which are just not smart enough. Like Facebook had this, uh, I think a couple of years ago, had this algorithm that would put together your pictures of the year and put it into a cheery photo uh, mosaic video at the end of the year. Um, and I believe some, uh, I think it was a writer. He got this video uh, at the end of the year, of all the all the pictures of his kid going through the stages of cancer and dying, said Happy New Year, <laughs> and uh, and like animated characters and, and happy music, and the system was just 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 thought it was doing something great. The intent of the programmers was not uh, negligent, but they didn't foresee this particular edge case. Um, and yeah, similar things in like uh, um, Amazon trying to optimize their Prime deliveries to different places. Uh, where all of a sudden it removed neighborhoods of color um, from prime delivery um, because of the data. Uh, and again, these are things that a human would see as bad for the company on a PR level. Um, it might be you know, logical mathematically, but actually it's not, th not the thing that should be done. Um, so uh, we do need things to get a million times better in these in these. These, these places that deal with people's emotions or feelings or, or personality and that sort of thing. Um, and the, the, the question is, up to that time, what's, what, 
where do we have to step carefully um, and where what's ethical and not ethical to do uh, before those before those points happen um, where it might be you know fiscally makes sense or, or you know made sense from a cute little video standpoint um, but went totally wrong in, in the end um, and I think what has to happen before computers become smart enough is a way to catch those things and, and vet them by people. Um, so, I, yeah, I want to be optimistic about all these sorts of things. No, but the, we're, we're, such a <laughs> we're, we're like we're the perfect team. <laughs> no, totally, and, and and I agree. Those those are the concerns. And thank you, um, thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful night. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.